I'm John. And I'm Keith. And this is Flumadiddle. Flumadiddle, your somewhat reliable source of information for most things, John. Most things, Keith, included but not limited to rockets. Rockets. Man, that's awesome. Rockets. Rockets. The history of rockets. We're going to talk about the history of rockets today. And then the next episode is going to be a three parter. After that, we're going to talk about the history of space travel and then go into the future of space travel, John. Right. Because we can see the future, John. Well, Keith, I almost had an off-color joke to go in there, but since this is a generally family-friendly PG-13 <laughs> Max podcast, I'm just going to smile at you. There you go. <laughs> well, let's get right into it, John. Right, let's do it. All right. First, I want the audience to imagine. Let's imagine. This big old rocket called the Saturn V. Cape Canaveral, was it? Yeah. 1967, November, first time. That's right, Was man. our place right? Either way, Keith. That you thing, got it. I'm giving you that. I'm passing it off to you. The thing was setting at 360 foot tall, taller than the symbol of freedom, her, freedom herself, the Statue of Liberty, right? All right. John, is this a new symbol of freedom, maybe? the Isn't the mm. idea of exploration, exploration, it gives us freedom, right, to go and explore and see what's out there. And you got exactly. just smoke billowing from the side of this thing from the liquid and hydrogen just warming up getting ready to go the faces of the people inside the control room are somber their arms are crossed they just they're have like, is this going to be a big explosive bomb on the thing here i know man i know they just got they're just full of anxiety and in anticipation john just waiting for this Nervous thing to go expectation, off expectation keith the only one talking in the entire room is that man that guy that counts down saying 10 Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. And at about four, John, those engines cut on, right? Fire starts pouring down from below those, those engines like lava. You hear the rumbling. You feel the rumbling in your chest. It breaks free from the platform, and it starts taking off into the sky. I can see it right now, Keith. And we go into outer space, John, and we land on another celestial body other than the Earth for the first time in well, history. Well, not in 1967, but that was 1969. I mixed your time frame up. I was just that's talking right. about the first the Saturn first, rocket okay, blast yeah, off. Right. Well, we did do that, though, a couple but years later. But we did that on, the on same Apollo 11. Rocket, that's right. The same rocket key. But, John, that rocket... First thing to take us out of low Earth orbit. Now, you remember our, our uh, history of the bicycle episode, John? I remember it well, Keith. We've spoken about it this week, which, uh, by the way, yesterday is World Bicycle Day. You know, you got like World Donut Day, and I, I don't, I think Bob at Bob's Donuts made that up. Yeah. But this is like a real kind Sounds of like one I'd like to celebrate. Though. Exactly. Oh, very much yeah. so. Very. I'd like donuts right now, Keith. Next time, feel free to bring donuts. Or hey, anybody out there that loves us, feel free to send us donuts. Yeah. So anyway, this is actually like part of the UN transportation thing of the world, and a lot of people are on it all over the world. You know, we talked about on a bicycle episode, places like China, especially in the East, Vietnam. Yeah. The the bike is huge, Keith. But one thing that, that stood out to world me bicycle about day. that entire episode, John, was that women love the bicycle. Why? Because usually during that time, you had one car per family, and the man would go off and use it for work or whatever. So the woman was kind of stuck at home raising the kids. So the bicycle gave her a sense of freedom. Freedom. To she explore. could go to the oh grocery gosh, store. Keith. She could explore so much stuff. You know, man, th this is another 
mode of transportation that kind of feels like it might give us a sense of freedom. To, we love to, modes of transportation here on Flumadon. Absolutely. So anyway, the rocket... Don't even get me started on the bicycle. Keep going, Keith. That beautiful, beautiful rocket. The shiny, phallic rocket. And you can go to the, the great rocket city in Huntsville, Alabama, and see it standing oh, there man. today. Well, and it, what's so crazy is when you go see that, that Saturn V rocket, it's vertical, I yeah. mean, it's horizontal, rather. It's not standing up on a launch pad. It's laid yeah. out from Now, they one do have end. one standing vertical. It's like a replica. Yeah, right? No, it's a but, different. That's a whole different rocket. Oh, that's not they, a Saturn V. They have the Saturn V inside the museum. They have the, the Saturn V in yeah. the museum, and it's laying horizontal. And, and you huge. walk by that thing, and you walk the link, and you're like, how in the world? I know. It's, it's insane. It's amazing. Yes. All right, Keith. But you're going to take us back, right? This is the that, point, yeah, Keith, that, massive that we're headed to. That massive thing has humble origins, right? It has humble origins. It has very humble origins. As a matter of fact, Keith. You're going to tell us about them right now. <laughs> All right. So um, the earliest thing that we have is this Roman manuscript that tells the story of a, this Greek man named Archytas. Oh, I like it already. Archytas. He was Archimedes' brother. Yeah. And this guy, this cat, he amazed people with his flying wooden pigeon. Woo! I like, <laughs> Keith, I'm on board. Because what's so funny, Keith and I don't always have a chance to go over our portions of the outline and stuff, because we like to keep a certain level of kind of improvisation. Right. We don't want to know exactly what the other person's going to say, because we want there to be surprised. And I guarantee you, I'm surprised, because I have never heard of Architus's and his flying, flying wooden, wooden pigeon. pigeon. Yeah. That's the highlight of my day, Keith. Keep going, please. Right. And so, um, anyway, he would use this uh, wooden pigeon and go around and just amaze people, you know? I mean, during this time, nothing flew, right? No, no, nothing man-made. You know, you had flying right, birds exactly. and stuff right there. But he had this machine, basically, right? That's awesome. 2,000 years before Isaac Newton even there, or even came up with the, the law of the action-reaction principle. Right. 2,000 years before that, he had this flying machine. And he what he used was the principle of escaping steam, so he right. used the principle of propulsion. Right. And this is the earliest recorded example of propulsion. I love it. I want to do a, a short. Maybe we need to do a Patreon thing on the uh, Architus's wooden pigeon. Yeah, there right, you go. Keep going. I, know, I right. got you, though. I, 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 I'll that, get that'd be a great T-shirt, wouldn't it? Yeah, just like a wooden maybe pigeon that would be. Yeah, with Flumadiddle. Flumadiddle. T-shirt, yeah. The Dude, wooden pigeon. Okay, hold on. Let me borrow you. We got to put All that right. one next to the one where, what was it? Oh, something, the one that. riding a. Riding no, a roach or something? No. You remember we had the one, the parasite one? Yeah, that's Where it was like about. the wasp was coming out of the caterpillar. Was it a caterpillar? Yeah. Or an ant? I don't know. Yeah, something like that. It was something like that where the certain wasp larvae bursted out of the caterpillar or something head. And was I had an idea of that we, riding the caterpillar like a cowboy. Yeah, there you go. Something like that. Man. Yeah. We'll have to re-listen to that episode. So we that's can a good see episode. Y'all listen was. to it and tell us about it. That was a good episode. So anyway... Um, after that, not a lot went on, but you know those old Chinese, they came up with some pretty cool stuff, right? Man, ancient China was like had some serious stuff going on. Them in ancient Egypt were yeah. serious business. So about 2000 B.C., there's this legend of this man, Wan Hu. Wan Hu. Now, this is all legend. I just thought this story was pretty cool, right? So I had to include it. Well, we got to. Legend and mythology. This man thing. named Wan Hu, he's like this lesser-known official. And Wan Hu, what he did was he he strapped a chair to some to some kites. Okay, okay? and he put forty seven rockets behind his chair, and he was going to try to so take off. So this is probably some gunpowder type. 
Yeah, you know, well, it's a legend because technically, John, we're about to get into that. Okay, about, I'm sorry. Never mind. It, it's way before gunpowder. Okay, it actually you. predates Chinese rockets by about 3,000 oh. years. It <laughs> okay, even I was predates, trying to get all literal, Keith. Yeah, it I'm actually sorry. predates Chinese writing by about 300 years. All right, years, never mind. You know, so, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. But anyway, there's this legend, though, that this this guy, he strapped 40. He's like a lesser-known Chinese official, and he, he straps 47 rockets to the back of this chair. Right. And he's got these kites on top, and he's gonna take off, right? And he gets all these uh, <laughs> these these little uh, subjects to come light all at once, you know, and they run away, and then, boom, right? And the, the smoke is there, and whoo, the smoke clears. He's nowhere to be found, John. Where is he? It Where's Juan? Who is he on the moon, John? <laughs> It Who blew knows? him out of the chair. <laughs> I don't know. Probably, in, in all honesty, if, if the legend was real, it probably blew him to pieces. Right? Exactly. Because they had a lot of problems with these things exploding early on. That's pretty funny. But anyway, the Chinese did, though, do experiments when they discovered gunpowder with gunpowder and arrows. So okay. that what they would do to start with is they'd shoot the arrow with like a can of gunpowder attached to it, trying to make an explosion like when it landed, right? Okay. But it wasn't very long that somebody, probably accidentally if I had to guess about it, but discovered that you can actually use this can of gunpowder to pr- propel oh, there you the go. arrow. Exactly. Right? And so it wasn't... Very long, about 1232 A.D., they had discovered what is considered the first true rocket with that kind of concept with the arrow and the gunpowder. I can imagine they were probably pretty erratic. You, like, put a blob of gunpowder on the back of an arrow and blow it up. Let's see how that works. There was some guy later on who discovered how to make it spiral. Okay. And, like... I didn't include that because it really doesn't have a lot to do with rockets. We don't really no, spiral no, I'm rockets just, I'm to, just off to the, increase the accuracy. But you know, but you're right though; they were not very. When accurate. you talk about propulsion, like we think of bullets and gunpowder yes. or something. This, but anyway. But what they were good for, though, John, is even though they wasn't accurate, imagine having something like that when nobody else did. There you go. In war, it probably had a psychological factor. Just to freaks it. them out. Yeah, you're like, man, these people have technologies we don't have. You know, and they might shoot a whole bunch of them, and a few of them hit people and kill them. You know, they might, they might have got a few kills. Like in you're there, flying you know? over way out in Afghanistan in the middle of the country playing Slayer. Yeah. They think the devil's descending on them or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so what it did do, though, was it gave the Mongols the idea that, hey, these people have something cool. We want it too. So they came up with their own. The Mongol hordes <laughs> with a D. There you go. <laughs> um, so the Mongols were probably responsible, John, for taking them to the rest of, to, to all of Europe, you know, because okay. the Mongols were conquerors, right? Oh, yeah, very much so. And so they took, they were probably the ones who were responsible for taking rockets out to all of Europe. All right. So in Genghis Europe. Khan. Genghis Khan. And Kubla. Kubla. Who was Kubla? That was his I dad. don't know, but. Wasn't that, and Kubla wasn't, Khan. Wasn't that dad? Or was Genghis the dad? Yeah, I Kubla. think so. One of I just bad. know the the Samuel Taylor Taylor should do a, Samuel uh, Taylor Coleridge poem. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Isn't there like a giant statue of like one of those on a horse, either Genius or Kubla? Kubla. <laughs> Is that yeah. his name? Kubla. Kubla. Kubla Khan. K U B L A. That's it, ain't it? Yeah. Kubla. I just know the poem more than anything. <laughs> All right, man. So, like, in Europe, though, from the Kubla. 1200s through That's the, the... Hold on. That's the word for the day, Keith. Kubla. 
There you go. I like it. <laughs> Kubler. That is a cool name. I should have named my Kubler. kid that, man. Uh, you know, that'd what be a good name for a dog, at least. If name I your dog a, Kubler. I'm going to like encourage my kids to name my grandkids Kubler. <laughs> one at of least them. a middle name. Yeah. One of It'd be like Richard Kubler Clay. It's such an awesome name. I love it. Kubler. Good, man. Kubler. All right. So then we get to the 1200s, and from the 1200s through the 1400s, there were many reports of rocket experiments, John. So they were doing a bunch of experiments with them. Right. Was oh Leonardo da Vinci? I wonder if Budweiser was, was involved. It? Like, hey, y'all watch this. Yeah, probably. <laughs> lots of Famous British last guys. Words. <laughs> yeah. A Red lots Bull. Of, yeah, lots of old dudes blowing themselves up back in the 1500s yeah. or something. I wonder if Leonardo da Vinci was involved in some of those rocket experiments. I didn't well, look that up. I don't know. That'd maybe the audience can maybe, let Yeah, us know. I would love for you to look it up. Please don't just listen to us. Hey, we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> or somewhere. Check it out. Alive. Yeah, exactly. Check it out and see what you think. Tell us about it. All right. John, I think this is a good time to take a break and talk about the widows. What do you think? Let's do it, Keith. So there right. is a lovely lady named Marlene Kraft who we connected with many years ago through a something at work. Anyway, she had lost a husband and had worked her way through grief and had become a missionary to the widows, and she started a group called Widow's Link. Yes. And we have supported that here for the last two or three years. Yes. And anything that you do to help us out, whether it's uh, joining Patreon, well, that's really the main way you can help us out right now. Right. Though we have had some people just donate directly to the podcast. Yes. And for those who have donated to the podcast – and marketed that or marked that as Widow's Link, we have given 100% yes, of that to Widow's Link as yeah. best I recall. Yes. So, but if you like what we do, you want to support us and Widow's Link, just know that part of the proceeds always go to Widow's Link. Always yeah. go to Widow's Link. So. Absolutely. We were able to send this lady on a cruise, and uh, just the, the exactly. story that Marlene told us, it just really, it really changed her life in a way exactly. like, because she was able to reconnect and make new <clears throat> friends and she was in a bad place and that cruise just really turned her around and that's what that cruise is all about it was like a grief support exactly. cruise. so thank you for your support already and we just thank you guys for listening to the podcast we love you guys we absolutely we love it and we're glad that you took the time there's so many podcasts out there i love podcasts but i have my favorites and i listen to a group of five or ten that i really like and Boy, if we're part of your five or ten that you really like, we appreciate you taking the time for sure. Absolutely. All right, All right brother. So Keith. back to the show. All right. <laughs> so, twelve hundred through fourteen hundreds, a lot of experiments. But in the fifteen hundreds, by then they were regular, regularly, regularly, regularly used as fireworks, John. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know that that makes sense. It wasn't very accurate as uh, you know weapons of war. So let's just use them to entertain folks. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, so, let's just blow stuff up and have fun with yeah, colors and shapes and Absolutely. Sounds. I mean, that's fun today. It's fun. Yeah. Man. We do it every year. At least Alabama, fireworks still legal in Alabama, you know? There you Y'all go. Y'all come on to Alabama. You have some fun. <laughs> You'll like it. There you right. go. So anyway, there was this German firework maker named Joanne Schmidlap. Johan. Is that Johan? Yeah. It looks like Joanne. Like Johan's. <laughs> like like Joanne Sebastian back. <laughs> I clearly see a J there, John. Are you uh, are you on? Is your name on? <laughs> yes. Jan. You can just call me Jan. On? So that, that last name's pretty funny too. Schmidlop. Schmidlap. Johan Schmidlop. <laughs> he created two stage firework, Keith, to do what? To help it get more altitude. That's pretty important, right? It definitely, man. The further I mean, from the ground you get, the more of a rocket it is. Think about when this is. 1500s. 1500s. Do we use two-stage now? 
Yeah. The two <laughs> yeah. or three. You're looking at me like I'm you're like, not sure. oh, wait a minute. I know there's two or three because there's the first well, yeah, stage. Well, what I meant was at least two stages. At least two stages. We use okay. more than one stage, right? Yeah, oh, very much. So think about this. In 1500s, he's already coming up with this principle, right? Of hey, increasing I'm, I'm somewhat reliable, by, y'all. Give me a break. By multiple stages. So that's pretty cool. This guy, uh, No J, Johan <laughs> Schmidlap. Schmidlap. He, was, he created the two stage firework to get more altitude. So that was a pretty cool principle that he came up with. Um, in the late 1600s, not long after that, um, Sir Isaac Newton finally came up with his three laws that included the action-reaction principle, right? Exactly. You know a lot about the that principle. The action was, if the apple falls on my face, I'm going to scream. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? oh, well, there's Yeah, his main things were like the, the principles of our, you know, our whole outlook of physics until like the 20th century. Now, when you get off into like... Uh, Einstein? Well, past Einstein, yeah, up to Einstein, and then when you get off into quantum stuff, like all bets are off. We're still working on that kind of stuff. Yeah, you get but, way above my head as well. You, yeah, exactly. But, but you've this, got your basic action-reaction, yeah. inertia. Right. You've got, you know, a feather falls at the same rate as an apple does. Right. For every action, there There's is an, an equal and, and opposite reaction. reaction. That was right. his law, right? Exactly. So that has a lot to do with propulsion. And um, so because I guess, you know, when you identify something, John, you kind of you're able to do better with your experiments, even though you were already experimenting with this principle, identifying it helps you like, you know, it's real, you know, it's there. Now I know exactly what to do. Right. Exactly. So a lot more experiments came out of this. And then not a lot happened after that, except for, you know, a lot of probably disease and, you know. Chaos. Poverty and chaos, and we got fireworks. Yeah, we and had more re- important things to worry about well, for a little while. We got while, the Renaissance, we got the Reformation, yeah. and we got lots of all and kinds. We started of painting on canvases instead of worrying about you know sending rockets up in there. The Industrial Revolution. Actually, a whole lot happens in the following years. Like literally, in religion, you've got the Reformation, you've got the Renaissance, Renaissance or Renaissance, if you prefer, for you, you charlatans. I've never heard it called Renaissance. Cretans, and so. Um, then you get through the Industrial Revolution, and yeah. at some point, you know, you, you, we're no, talking... Wait, 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 wait. You passed us. Oh, did I skip past you? Yeah. We're not Industrial Revolution. Well, yet, yeah, really. by 1898, we're, we're sneaking right we're, we're, well, sneaking up on it. We've gotten past the steam engine, so we're in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. So here we are. We're getting to more modern times. We're, we got to fast forward it at some point, and this is our fast forward moment. And, and uh, on, I'll let you pronounce this next one. You can either say... Constantin or Constantin Shilkovsky. Wow. Russian school I would have never got that out of that. I would have said something like Tsolovsky. Or Constantin. Tsolkovsky. He was Russian, so just pretend. I just know in 1998 he did crap. I think I might have peaked there for a second while you. That's all right. That's okay. We're we're at our peak, man. Oh right, yes, so we in, are. Keep bumping. <laughs> in 1898, he was a Russian school teacher, and he proposed using rockets for space exploration. Dirty czarist pig. Five years later, I don't know what he did for five years, but anyway, five years later, he wrote a paper about <laughs> it. Right. Well, he thought about it for five years. He thought about it for five years. Got all his thoughts in order, and then he wrote a paper about it. All right. So in the paper, he also made the suggestion of using liquid propellants. That's pretty. Impressive, right? Yeah. It's because up to that point, it's solid propellants, like gunpowder. Right, gunpowder. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different ballgame, man. 
All right. So, and then Lenin and all them came in and killed everybody in the Bolshevik Revolution. And yeah. we'll talk more about that in the next podcast. He's probably a victim of that, more than likely. It's like, oh, Shulkovsky. Who needs those? Let them starve. Um, anyway, he's one of three people we're going to talk about today that was pretty instrumental, though, in, in rocket technology. I mean, just coming up with this idea of liquid propellant, that's huge. And yeah. also just coming up with ideas that's a that sea maybe, change, as you would call it. Yeah. Maybe we can get these things big enough to even get out of our atmosphere. Ooh. You know, that's a big idea for that. That's time. a big idea, Keith. So um, the next guy was an Who American. The heck do you think you are thinking like that? Exactly. What's the big idea? All right. So mm. Robert H. Goddard. Goddard. I can pronounce his. He's American. He's American. We so know, uh, we know how he talks. That's right. On March sixteenth, nineteen twenty-six, he had the first rocket flight using liquid propellant. What? So you're looking at nineteen oh three. This guy comes up with the idea. Nineteen twenty-six. This guy accomplished it right okay now john it flew an impressive 12.5 meters or 41 feet <laughs> high, right. high and hot and it actually landed about 184 feet away in the cabbage patch all right no, I can accept no that. kids were harmed in, in no kids market. but cabbage then, patch but kids. a toy was born yeah that's right <laughs> so anyway you know, it doesn't sound that impressive, but here's the thing. He had used solid propellants for quite a while and was not satisfied with the results. He probably had read this guy's paper and thought, well, let's give it a shot, you know, but he had to build something that would be able to handle liquid propellants. It's a whole different ballgame, right? Right. And so he did that, and he was successful at building something that could handle liquid propellants. That's a huge deal. Even though it didn't fly very, very far, so. it Absolutely. was a huge deal. Well, I mean, think about we had to – and Goddard did a whole lot of other stuff, but this is just kind of, you know, we're keeping we have to in line focus with the, this thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when people think that's not a big deal, think about the Wright brothers. Right. Like their deal, you think, well, he flew like 2.5 feet. You got to start somewhere, right, John? Exactly. Despise not small beginnings, Keith. Every bonfire yeah. starts with a spark, buddy. Spark. Yeah. All right. So, um, another thing Goddard did, too, was he also theorized that rockets might one day be able to get us. To the moon. I bet people thought he was an absolute nut job Insane, at that point. Right. But there was this other guy, similar timing though, Herman Oberth. That's or a, you might call him Herman Oberth. Is that right? No, I don't know. I man. call him Herman. We'll go with Herman. What is up with people not saying the first letter in these names? Herman. Johan and Herman. <laughs> Johan. Johan. <laughs> kind of like Jesus. Anyway. Anyway, keep going. So German physicist okay. and engineer. I didn't know he was Spanish. But anyway, all right, so he was a German physicist and engineer. And this guy, now, you're talking about somebody who thought he was crazy. He would actually, like, be consulted on films about going to the moon and stuff like that. Like that real early film. You ever seen that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so you're talking about somebody who they thought he's, he really thought this thing was possible, you know, and he would be consulted as a physicist and engineer on like different films and stuff like that. But he also did something that was pretty important, which was published a book about rocket travel into space in 1923. So what this did, John, when he published this book, is it actually led to the creation of a lot of rocketry societies, including right. the very important German Society for Space Travel. Important in rockets anyway, right? Um, the German Society for Space Travel, they were able to come up with 
a very powerful and accurate rocket, John. What rocket was that? The V-2. Yes. This was a game changer, Keith. Now, we're into World War II at this point, right? And in V-2, this German society... I mean, in, in World War II, this German Society for Space Travel was able to come up with what's called the V-2 rocket. This V-2 rocket was powerful enough to take out city blocks, like, from far, far away. Yes, Keith. This is a game changer, right? It's a game changer. Absolutely. Um, it, it was, was actually used against London in World War II. Yeah, it said over 1,400 were launched against Britain and more yeah. than 500 striking London. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a fearful thing, man. It is. It is. Now, here's the thing, John. It was pretty late in World War II, and that's probably the only yeah, reason. September of 44. Yeah. Man, if they'd have had late. those when the Blitzkrieg began, like yes. early, like th- late 30s, so That's probably 1940. the only reason that the V-2 rocket wasn't like a game changer for the war, because it was just so late in the war. We were already pretty much had a handle on the war by that point. Us by the, September of '44, yeah. definitely we did. But imagine this: though they were less fortunate, or I'm sorry, less fortunate, less accurate than V1 missiles, they traveled at the speed of sound and made no warning noise before impact. Yes. So where all the spotters and things that they had in place in Great Britain early in World War II during the Blitzkrieg, oh man, if that had V2s during the Blitzkrieg, even though they were less accurate, I mean, who knows? Right. So, John, this this was a powerful rocket that had been proven to be accurate, deadly, amazing weapon of war. And you know what? More than that, in addition to that? What? It was not an offensive. It, though it was an offensive weapon, you know, Germany had so attacked Great Britain yeah. and so attacked U-boats— so, you know, then finally the U.S. and the Allies, which have some very questionable bombings against places like Dresden and stuff, it was designed as a vengeance weapon. Yeah. Their only point of creating that was to just create havoc and destruction and revenge for what they had done. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy stuff, man. It was. But, John, you got something that kind of happened toward the end of World War II, right? You have two powerful countries that emerged. Who were those countries? The U.S. and the USSR. Right. Now, the U.S. and the USSR, although they were working together during this time... Yes, they had a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy They definitely is had, my friend. Right, exactly. And, and, and Hitler was just a crazy man that had to be stopped, you know. So you have to work together even though you have different ideologies, which they had very much so different ideologies between their go- type of governments between the U.S. and the USSR. Oh, very much so. And, and, and at the end of the day, who knows, it looks like Stalin might have been more of a madman than Hitler was. Exactly. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast. It is. That's a whole other podcast. But my point is, though, is that you're going to have a new war that emerges called the Cold War. The Cold War. And think about this, John. As you have the Cold War coming emerging, you also have this weapon. Now, the USA, United States, had created the nuclear weapon. Correct. The atomic bomb. Right. But how did they drop it, John? It was dropped from a plane, generally. Right. So think about this. So you had to fly V-2 over. rocket. Now you have maybe another mode of transporting 
this powerful and bomb. highly explosive thing to so a far have, off place. You have two countries not only like in a race to get the atomic bomb and be the the leader of the you know be the leader as a nuclear power, but also in a race to be able to deliver that nuclear bomb in a mighty way, and that's where the rockets come into play. All right, so there's going to be a huge race coming up during the Cold War, not only in weapons of war, but also will translate into the space race. And it seems obvious here that the U.S. and Russia were obviously not the forerunners and winning the race in terms of rocketry. Right. That was the Germans. The Germans. So we're getting towards the end of World War II, and things are looking very clear You've got Russia on the western front or eastern front. You got the Allies on the western front, and they're pushing towards Berlin. I mean, it's clear that it's over. And these guys that have been—I mean, how many of those German leaders and stuff got uh, got caught, captured, and charged with like war crimes? But both sides, the U.S. and the USSR, are looking for these rocket scientists. Man. Yes, and that's where we're going to leave you today at the end of this episode. We've kind of went through the history of the rocket. I told right. you the next one will be the history of space travel. So on our next episode, John, we will explore the history of space travel. We'll tackle the space race during the Cold War and how it ultimately led to that glorious rocket that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the Saturn V, that transported man off of this planet and onto another celestial body for the first time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. I like it, Keith. This is exciting. We're going to do another one. Come back and see us. Do you flumadiddle at gmail.com. Do you flumadiddle.com. And if you happen to use Apple Podcasts specifically, please go on there and feel free to leave us a review. Faster. Really. Faster. Faster. Faster Chinese buffet. (laughs) Which doesn't exist anymore, definitely. I know. Right? But that really helps us out. Yeah. Tell great. your friends about us. We love doing this for you guys, and we thank you for taking your time out and joining us today, and we're going to pick up and talk about rockets throughout the Cold War next time. Peace out. Grace and peace. Werner von Braun.